but no matter how bad things are, there's always hope. Uh, and before we look at uh, Christ's statements uh, from the cross, I do want to just take what that young lady said uh, and just apply it to the week in question, because this, this was an unbelievable week as a nation, evil week. Uh, we had a mass shooting in Colorado, uh, attacks on Asian Americans, rioting in Miami for spring break, uh, multiple shootings uh, you know, at the end of the week here in uh, Virginia Beach of all places. It's just unbelievable the amount of evil. And then I watched that video. And I thought in the middle of all of that, all those complexities, uh, is the Lord saying, no matter how bad it gets, don't lose hope that I'm at work. Because what does the nation really need? Uh, we don't need another law, another rule, another regulation. Uh, we need the king that was on the donkey that day riding in Jerusalem, don't we? We need the king of kings. And he's the answer. Uh, and, uh, you know, I... I find great hope in, in that little statement that she made there at the end of that video. Because like, where was Jesus in all of this? Where was God in all of that? Uh, he was at work. So I would encourage you today, uh, no matter uh, what the week was like, uh, don't lose hope because God is a God of hope and he's always at work uh, to do something amazing. He takes the tragedies and turns them into triumphs, which is what we will see as we look, not just at the... Uh, entry of Christ in Jerusalem, but at the end of the week when they crucified him, uh, he turned that to be an amazing victory. So be encouraged. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you are a God who takes bad things that go on in our evil world, uh, and you show us that there's always hope because you are, and you exist, uh, and you care about us, and you love us, and you've got a plan. There's always a hope that greater things are coming, and we thank you for the hope that we have. May we as your saints live like saints in the dark world in which we live to breathe hope and life into those lives about us. And may our living out the gospel and the kingdom message uh, truly uh, help turn the hearts of people that don't know you toward you. We give you our next few moments as we look at your statements from the cross. They are most profound, most challenging to we who know you and to those who don't know you. Uh, they are a call to come to know you. And we pray you'd speak most clearly today in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know. This probably, I'm going to date myself when I say this, but uh, Gary Cooper. Remember Gary Cooper? How many remember Gary Cooper? Yes. Great actor. Um, he played in the movie High Noon. I don't know if you saw it. Go, good old Western. But uh, when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, uh, Westerns were like the big thing. Uh, and they would typically have, you know, uh, a bad gang takes over. I could write these things. You know, bad gang takes over a town. Uh, the sheriff shows up or some good guy shows up and takes on uh, the bad guys. Uh, they usually have some kind of shootout, duel, whatever. Uh, the bad guys lose, the good guy wins. If you apply that motif, and it usually happens like around high noon, right? But when you apply that motif to the cross, it didn't quite play out like what you would anticipate because you have the devil and his minions, his gang, is taking on Jesus and they're, they're going to crucify him. And from their perspective, they're thinking, oh, we've totally got this. And they, they take out the good guy, as it were. And from what the scriptures teach us, this all happened at high noon, as we're going to see. It's kind of interesting how God works. He takes uh, dark days, bad days, tragic days. And he says, I'm working in that against the devil and his minions. I mean, who would have thought that uh, the prophecy of God in Genesis 3.15 uh, would be fulfilled on a lonely hill with the sacrifice of the Son of God. Who would have ever thought that that's how God would deal with sin? 
Genesis 3.15, I've quoted it many times over the last 12 years I've been here because I think it's pivotal to understand the entire Old Testament and the redemptive story of God. Because there, after man's fall in the Garden of Eden, this is what God said to the devil. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The, the statement is a, a divine struggle uh, between God and the devil, between light and darkness. Uh, and it's going to culminate in the coming of the seed, the Messiah. And what would happen, according to God, is that the, the devil would aff afflict uh, a heel wound to the coming seed, but the coming Messiah, the ultimate seed, the Redeemer, would afflict a head wound, a death wound to the devil. But the devil in his arrogance didn't quite get it, did he? He thought that he actually had Christ on the ropes when he had him on that hill at high noon, that he could actually take him out. And God's looking down from heaven saying, no, my son's going to deal you the blow, not you. It was a fateful day. It was Passover. Uh, it was noon. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 45 says this. It says, now from the sixth hour in Jewish time reckoning, that was noon, Darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour, which was three o'clock when Christ died. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice in the darkness saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Noon, when the devil took on Jesus and Jesus took on the devil, darkness descended. Prior to that, Jesus has said a few things from the cross. Uh, seven total. Uh, the three things that he said while it was still daylight when people could see him on the cross were these in this order, I believe. Number one, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Speaking of the crucifixion detail that uh, gambled away his garments. Luke 23, 43, he said to the thief who repented after mocking him for several hours, when that thief realized that Jesus was the Messiah, uh, he, he forgave his sin and said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Third thing he said before uh, the father turned out the lights in the cosmos uh, was he looked at his mother, as we saw last week, standing at the base of the cross with three other ladies and John, the disciple, who was also his cousin. And he said, before it became extremely dark, woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, which would be John, John, behold your mother. Basically, take care of my mother. Those were three last statements that he made prior to become extremely dark. It says that the darkness uh, covered the land. Uh, Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew talks about this and talks about it covering all of the land. Mark in chapter 15 says it covered the whole land. But if you look at that little phrase, uh, lexically, uh, it is also used like in Revelation chapter 5, 6 to denote global darkness. That when the Son of God died on the hill that day at high noon, when it became extremely dark, um, it wasn't just darkness over Jerusalem. It was worldwide darkness because sin was worldwide. Now, if you think about this, uh, Luke says in Matthew 23, 45, he said that at noon, the sun stopped shining. This is not a solar eclipse. God just took the sun and turned it down. Now, if you're into astronomy and all that, and you're wondering, well, how could he do that because of the helium exchange? And all, ask him when you see him. He made it dark. He's God. It wasn't a solar eclipse. Well, how do I know that? Well, I, I read up a little bit on solar eclipses today or this week just to kind of ask myself, 
was this something supernatural or did it just happen to be a solar eclipse? Well, what I found out was most interesting because the darkness lasted from noon till 3 p.m. Uh, I found out that the last solar eclipse in 2017 here in the United States lasted the darkness, the dark stage, because you all know it happens. It starts getting kind of dark, kind of dark, and then it's dark, but it's not like pitch black, and then it starts getting light again. The dark maximum stage lasts for two minutes and 40.2 seconds. Mm, this was no solar eclipse. Why? It lasted for three hours. Total darkness. Luke said the sun stopped shining. The sun stopped shining. Total darkness. Have you ever been in total darkness? Uh, I was as a kid. Uh, my parents, uh, we went on a, a vacation to go see some friends in Tucson. Uh, we were bored one day, wanted to do something. So they said, let's go, let's go to a cave. <laughs> that sounds like a great choice. So we went to a colossal cave. I'd never been in a cave before. This is totally cool. Uh, and at the time, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers had put little light bulbs uh, down the, the, the cave, down to the bottom. I think we got down about 800 feet. And down when you got to the bottom, there was a rail there. Uh, and on the other side of it, it was, there was a black abyss. What do you think a kid's going to do if you're standing in front of a black abyss besides jumping it? Uh, drop some rocks in there. So while the guide is talking about, you know, this cave and everything, I got some rocks and I dropped them into that black abyss. Never heard him hit. So I just kind of backed away from that dark abyss. So I was standing there with the crowd, you know, a couple little light bulbs of the Army Corps of Engineers hung on the walls. Uh, I'm thinking, man, thank God for those little light bulbs. And about that time, the guide said, I want to show you what total darkness is like. And so he turned out those little light bulbs. You know, when you go in a movie theater and you're coming in late with the popcorn and everything, and you're, you know, and you're looking for your family, and you got to wait for the rod and the cones in your eyes to adjust so you can see them, so you don't sit on somebody that you don't know. You know, you know what I'm saying? The rods and the cones in my eyes never adjusted to that darkness. It was total darkness. I mean, it was like darkness that you could feel. I think I was about 12, 13 years old at the time. It was, it was scary. And I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to ever be able to see. I stuck my hand up in front of my face. Couldn't, nothing. Total darkness. And then the tour guide said, I'm going to do something amazing. He said, I have a, a box of matches here, and I'm just going to strike one and show you the power of light. This wasn't even a Christian tour. He opens a little matchbox. You could hear it slide open, pulls out a match, lit up the entire room that we were in. And I thought to myself, because I was a young Christian back then, that's like the gospel. Men are lost in total darkness. Again, go back to what the young lady said. Just when you think it's as bad as bad could get, and God says, no, I'm working in that. I'm the light. He's the, he's the answer to the culture. He's the answer to the problems. Darkness for three straight hours. We're not talking, you know, you can kind of see people. We're talking dense darkness, like in that cave, hits the planet. Why did God use darkness? Uh, I'll give you five reasons why I think God the Father used darkness. Number one. Uh, darkness biblically represents sin in general uh, all throughout the Bible. Matthew 6, 23 is a case in point. John 3, 19. It, sin is dark and black to God, who is the opposite of that. Two, uh, darkness biblically represents in the scriptures a sinner. Uh, they're a dark person who do dark things. That's what Ephesians 5, 8 says. Number three, darkness biblically represents the power of Satan. That's how Paul uses it uh, in Ephesians 6, uh, 12. For that passage where he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers of darkness. 
It's the darkness. It's the power of demonic world represents Satan. Uh, fourth, uh, darkness biblically was used by God in the Exodus story to demonstrate his power over pagan deities. So it, when God takes the sun, the sun god Ra, and turns their sun god down, one of the greatest gods in their pantheon, he's showing Pharaoh, I totally own you. Your God is no God. I am God. So when God's in the, in the, in the, in the state of delivering people from bondage and slavery, as terrible as that was, he, he does it by using his divine powers to destroy that which represents darkness. And then lastly, uh, darkness uh, is used by God to set up the most ironic thing, I think, in Scripture. He's going to use darkness on the cross, on, on the world that day, but primarily on the cross with his son there paying for the penalty of sin. He's going to use darkness to destroy darkness. And imagine the devil and his minions are probably high-fiving each other that we've got him now. And what's God saying? No, I, I, I've got this. I'm gonna use darkness to destroy your darkness by my son who's the essence of light. Darkness. Just when you thought all hope was lost, God says, no, there's hope because I'm working in the darkness. In Joel chapter two, we find out uh, in verses one and two that darkness, that motif in the Old Testament uh, is, a, is a motif of the day of the Lord. That when God judges sin and sinners uh, on the day of the Lord when it comes in the future, um, that it's a day of, of deep darkness. Uh, it says in Joel chapter 2, 1 and 2, For the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. In the book of Amos chapter 5, the prophet says concerning the day of the Lord, it says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will be the day of the Lord to you? He says it will be darkness and not light. He says, it's like a, when a man flees from a lion and meets a bear. Talk about a bad day. I just got away from the bear. The lion, I mean, there's a bear? Bad day. He says, he, he goes to his home. He leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. He says, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? He says, if you're looking forward to the appearance of God in the day of the Lord, it's not gonna be pleasant. He says, because before my son appears, and just read Matthew 24, the appearance of Christ at the end of time, when he appears, he appears in darkness with great glory as his glory shines. So God turns down the powers of the cosmos to make it extremely black before the, the beauty of the Christ appears. He says, if you're, if you're looking for that day, it's not gonna be a simple day. It's gonna be a dark day. So you could say that the, the Christ on the cross is like a day of the Lord where he, is, he as the Lord is dealing with the devil and with sin. In the middle of that eerie darkness that descended uh, on the hill that day where they can't see the Christ or anybody anymore because of the deep darkness, he said those words, the fourth words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated for us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Me? You have forsaken me. He's quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. Uh, it's a psalm about the Messiah that that was foretold that he would battle the devil and sin and what would happen during that conflict. And here the Lord is stopping to quote that Psalm. You may think about it. When, when the Lord took on the devil in the wilderness as his ministry was just getting going and the devil tempts him three times, three times, how does the Lord himself deal with the devil in his temptations? Pretty simple. What did he do? Three times he quoted scripture. Every single time he was tempted, he quoted scripture. That's just a whole nother sermon series, but as a sidelight, when the devil tempts you, what should you do? 
Let's quote scripture to him. He, he can't handle scripture. Scripture's powerful. And so Jesus is here on the cross uh, quoting Psalm 22. I would put to you, if, if he was a lunatic or if he was a liar, that would be the last thing he'd be thinking about on the cross is quoting from the Psalter. Psalm 22, verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I wonder what his feelings were as he was hanging there because he's telling the father the essence of how he feels as a man, the God man. He's showing his mannishness because for the first time in his existence, and he was, he's ongoing because he's omnipresent. He's, he's, a, he's the I am that is outside of time and space. But in his mannishness, he's feeling the abandonment of the father on the man side of the equation. He's never felt that before. He always had an intimate relationship with the father. Hence, he cries out, my God, why are you forsaking me? Why did the father pull away from the son? Um, well, this leads to other questions. How could the father pull away from the son? I mean, just logically speaking, because in a Trinitarian structure where they are all united and they are all one, uh, same in essence, different in function, how could any one part of the Trinity not be absolutely part of the Trinity? Uh, it's above my pay grade. Don't ask, don't email me. No one understands exactly how that happened. That the Father who is omniscient, omnipresent, as is the Lord, as is the Holy Spirit. At this point in time, when Jesus is bearing the sin of the world, there is a, a, a brief turning away of the Father, as it were, from finite human language, where he cannot look upon the sin of all the world on his Son. And the Son feels distance from the Father that he's never felt before in the Trinitarian structure of things. But he's speaking from his mannish side. The scripture is clear, probably, of why the father turned, as it were, from the son. Paul says, writes later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. And then that clause there is a haughty clause in the Greek text, tells you the reason why he did this. So that we might become, we sinners, might become the righteousness of God, but it's only in him. See, it's in Jesus that you go from darkness and evil to life and light. He made him who knew no sins. See, the Father allowed the sin of all the world to be placed on him. You know, I was thinking this week, think of all the different kinds of sin that were placed on him. I mean, think of it. Murder, larceny, robbery, racism. Go down the list. All the evil. All the evil. All the, all the sexual sins, all, all the sin of all the time was placed upon the, the, the Lord himself as our sacrifice, who, as Paul says, knew no sin ever. Rightly so did he say, Father, why am I being forsaken? Because from the human side of things, that's how it felt. But remember what the young lady said in the video. Just when you thought things couldn't get bad and where was God in all this, the Father's looking down from heaven and saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm working. I'm in this. You know, I find uh, the Lord's words are mind-numbing to me personally. Uh, just how could he who knew no sin willingly leave the glory of heaven and take my sin on himself? Not just my sin, but all of our sin. That's amazing love right there. The other thing is uh, I'm, I'm thankful for a Savior who taught me as he hung on that cross and spoke these words. Uh, he taught me as a mortal how to face death because of the things that he said there. 
that at, the, at a point of deep despair, he shares those things that are hard to share. Like when my father was dying of brain cancer that I mentioned last week. One night, I spent a couple hours with him. 11 o'clock at night, I'm leaving the, the room. And my dad, a great saint, chairman of the elder board, many times over in the churches he served in, I learned all my spiritual things from my dad and my mom. And as I left, he said, could you come back in the room? And I said, sure, what, what's the problem? He goes, I, I really need to ask you a question. And I said, yeah, dad, what's the question? And so I sat down next to him again. And uh, he said, is it okay for me to be afraid? Well, we had a big theological discussion about why you do not be, have to be afraid by going through the, the, the door of death. Because you know, I told him, you put in my heart and mind the truth of the word of God. You're going to go right through that door into blazing glory with Christ. Nothing to fear, Dad. And that was the last time he ever asked me that. See, the Lord teaches you through his example how to face things like that. Because uh, I can tell you from being a pastor, being with many people as they've passed away, if they're Christians, they'll ask me typically for two things. Number one, would you, my pastor, read the word of God to me? And would you pray for me? What do they ask? Two things. Would you read the word of God to me? And would you pray for me? Uh, they, they want the word of God. Why? It, it has the comfort and the answers. See, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, but Jesus, who is Psalm 22, who knows this, it's, it's his word, uh, knows the rest of Psalm 22, verse 24. He knows that that psalm ends on a crescendo. It's like when you're playing a beautiful musical piece and you're reading the adagio and the, the forte and you, know, and you get to the end and there's a crescendo. You, you gotta play that different than the rest of the piece. Verse 24 says, for he... God has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he, God, hidden his face from him who is afflicted. But when he cried for help, it says he heard. That's amazing. See, Jesus knows I can, I can cry in my mannishness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he says, I know verse 24 is, you hear me. It's like the young lady said in that video, when it seems like it's bad and God's not there and God seems to be showing up late, God's like, no, I'm not late. I'm just going to teach you some great things about myself. There's always hope because I'm always at work. Verse uh, 27, if you keep on reading Psalm 22, is uh, from a musical perspective, like the crescendo of that psalm, because it talks about uh, the long-awaited messianic kingdom coming after the abandonment of the Messiah. It says in verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. I mean, think of it. When the Messiah comes, all races that know Christ as Messiah will be around the throne worshiping Christ. It says, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, prosperity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and they will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. See, Jesus knows all of this. He's just in verse one. But what does he know in his heart? Well, that at the end of this, there's gonna be the coronation of the king and the kingdom. Even in despair, there's hope, which is why that little video is so powerful, especially when you think about the triumphal end of your Christ. What did they really need back then? Well, they needed the king of kings to be their king. Think about your life. You might feel like Jesus on the cross and you might think, well, he has absolutely forsaken me. I feel forsaken. 
where is God? He's three days late. He should have been here a long time ago. And I can go back through the things that I hear as a pastor because uh, I know the heartache that you face and heartache that I've had to face and I had to articulate those same kinds of things. When you get into deep darkness, you ask those human questions like, God, I can't believe what the doctor just told me. I wasn't anticipating that as I walked out of this room. That's unsettling to me. That's shocking to me. And what does God say as you walk to your car? It's okay. I'm in that darkness. I'm in the badness. I'm always working in that. When you uh, look at your, your family and, and a, a child is lost through disease, and you wonder to yourself, this is totally unjust. I can't believe God would permit this. Where is God? He's three days late. What does God say in that? I haven't forsaken you. I'm always working in that. I'm always going to teach you great things about myself and do great things. Will you trust me? When you look at a, a dysfunctional marriage that has gone from bad to worse for years, what does God say? I have my eye on your relationship. I have my eye on you. It's going to be okay. And if your husband deserted you and left you alone and you don't know where your money's going to come from, God hasn't forsaken you. He's right there with you. And really, if anybody moved, it was you. Because God says, I don't move. I'm with you. When you think about being a single and you don't want to be a single and you've been a single for years and all your friends get married along the way and you're thinking, has God forsaken me? I've been faithful to him. I go to church. I, I read the scriptures. I'm in Bible studies. I'm in a life group. Has God forsaken me? No, no. Even in badness, even in the toughness, even in the darkness, God says, no, I'm working behind the scenes to do things that will echo in eternity. Will you trust me? It's kind of God that he is. And I know our nation talks a lot about racism today, rightly so. They've been talking about it since I was a kid in the 60s. A lot of progress has made. A lot of digression has occurred as well. But even in all of that, if you say, I'm an object of racism, what does God say to you from heaven itself? Even in the middle of that evil, I'm working. I'm working. I don't forsake my people. If you feel like God has forsaken you, think again, because he's the God who's with you in the darkness to move you from verse 1 of the Psalter, 22 to the, the culmination when the king arrives. The fifth thing that Jesus said is most ironic. What does he say? Verse 28 of chapter 19 of John, in the darkness, not long before he gave up his spirit, he says two words that are totally unbelievable. I thirst. I thirst. I would say that is the most amazing thing I mean, talk about an understatement. I thirst. I thirst. Scriptures tell us that a jar full of sour wine, which the crucifixion details kept on hand uh, to give to uh, those who were crucified to deaden the pain was on hand. It says a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they took out a sponge of the sour wine, put it on a hyssop branch, and they brought it up to his mouth to quench his parched mouth. Where I grew up in the desert, we'd, we'd call that cotton mouth where you're so thirsty, you, there's no moisture in your, in your mouth at all. They put it on a branch of hyssop. And I think if I remember correctly for Peshach or Passover, it was the hyssop that they would dip uh, the sacrificial blood of the lamb in and put it on the doorpost of your home so that the death angel would pass over your house. This is really divinely ironic, isn't it? They're giving him hyssop. He is the Passover lamb to give him a drink as it were. This is in fulfillment 
of Psalm 90, uh, 69, verse 21, which says, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. See, even in the, even in the death of Christ, even in the darkness, he's fulfilling scripture to the letter. That's what it said. He's in total control of this particular uh, crucifixion. Devil thought he was winning. No, the Lord says, no, I'm going to win. I'm going to defeat you. I'm going to defeat sin. When I think about uh, Christ making that statement, I, I thirst, uh, I think two practical questions uh, come to mind, two statements. Number one, I find the statement, I thirst, highly ironic for the creator who created water is asking for water. Did you hear me? The creator who created water is asking for water. Uh, if you want to know how complex water is, and this is one of the testimonies to me as to why there's a living God, why I am not an atheist, why I am not an agnostic. God who created water, according to Colossians 1.16, says he's, he's the glue of the cosmos. Water is this complex. And one author says, in two swallows of water, there are six times 10 to the 23rd molecules of H2O. Now, if you don't like math, you're probably thinking, well, who cares? Leads to a logical question. How much is six times 10 to the 23rd power of, of molecules of water? It says a good computer can carry out 10 million counts per second. It would take that computer two billion years to count 10 to the 23rd power. What's that tell you? There's a God who made the complexity of water and he was hanging on the cross that day. Think about it. All he had to do in the darkness was say, I'll quench my thirst. He didn't. Why? Because he as the God man had to die for our sin. It's amazing that he made that statement. Number two, I find the statement I thirst highly ironic insofar as Jesus was the water of spiritual life. So he who is physically thirsty and it says I'm physically thirsty, is the essence of spiritual water. What did he tell the woman at the well who was spiritually thirsty? He tells her, I am the living water. And if you trust me as your savior, waters of life will flow out of your soul for all eternity. It's ironic that he said he's physically thirsty when he is the essence of all spiritual water that quenches spiritual thirst. So it leads to a, well, a logical question. Have you ever had a drink by faith of Christ? He said, I thirst. He thirsted for you physically so that you wouldn't have to thirst spiritually. I took the drink back in uh, 1967 when I was nine. I have a bottle of water here today. There's a whole basket full of bottled water here. Um, we had them printed up differently. And on the bottle, it says living water. On the back of it, it says John 4, 13, where Christ tells the woman at the well, I'm the living water. Uh, the greatest thing you could ever do in your life is look to the man that was on the cross who said, I thirst physically so you don't have to thirst spiritually and say, Lord, I want to drink of you by faith today as my Savior. He will flood your soul with forgiveness. That's what you need. So we're going to sing an old hymn. And if you know it, I invite you to sing along. Uh, we're going to have an altar call again. Why? Because we need to challenge those who don't Christ to come partake. And so I'm going to ask you, if you're gonna, I'm only talking to people who don't know Christ. As we sing softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling to you to come home. Uh, if you would like to come to know the Christ and have his water of life poured over your soul for all eternity, I have bottles down here for you to take. And not that the water in and of itself in the bottle gives you eternal life. This is just a, a symbol. 
but come and take a bottle and say, I want that water in my life and then just sign your name on my tablet so I can pray for you and follow up on you. Why don't we stand as we sing sorrowfully and tenderly. It's an old hymn, great old hymn. God's calling your name for you to come home.